podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We've got another great guest this week, a very old and dear friend of mine, a fun master, a fide master, a chess journalist, uh, a teacher, a small business owner, and now a podcast host, Mike Klein. What is the good word? Uh, The word is it was high time that I come on your show. I think I'm the filler guest. I'm the emergency summer guest and everybody's out of town. I admit that I've been kind of keeping you in my back pocket as a as a good friend of mine. But if you had told me when I launched this podcast like a year and a half ago that somehow you would not have made an appearance by this point, I would have thought there's no way the podcast survived. There's there's no way I can make 80 episodes without reaching out to you. But somehow it happened. Yeah, well, I made the top 100. That's usually my goal. Yeah, no, you're just you're a victim of your own success. I always I always knew you'd be there. And now we've got a good reason, because first of all, you've got your own podcast. Um and it's called Extreme Travel Odysseys. Uh, you, you've chess has only been mentioned a few times, but it's super entertaining. So obviously, we're going to get into your chess background. Um, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the uh, inspiration for this podcast? Besides my inspiration being you, Ben. Yes, yeah, so goes without saying. Well, uh, it was time to get into a new medium, um, and I love content creation. However, chess can be a little bit constricting sometimes. You know. Um, there's only so many times that a player can tell you that they're going to take it one game at a time. Um, I thought I was getting away from those quotes when I quit sports journalism back in college. But uh, anyway, I do like what I do in the chess world. I do like all the travels and, and meeting all the top players and talking to them. Um, some, as you may know, give more interesting quotes than others. Um, but my other passion is travel. And I can really do a lot more with interviews for my podcast than I can with my chess.com work because uh, for you know, chess.com news reports, not many people are going to listen to an interview of longer than three or five minutes. Um, but as you know, this sort of long form medium of podcasting lets me go really in depth into a person and really, uh, get to talk about some things that I never get to talk about in the chess world. So a couple of my guests have either been tangentially related to chess or, you know, something like that, but we, I don't really ask about chess. In fact, a couple of times that they've talked about being chess players, I've just kind of glossed over it and gone to my next question, um, which is not to say that I, I don't enjoy chess. It's just I'm trying to, you know, hear about Myanmar and some off the road places. So, uh, so yeah, I uh, I just wanted to do something a little bit outside my comfort zone. Yeah, as a I'm a listener, of course, to Extreme Travel Odysseys, and if anything so far, I'd say you're running away from chess. When it comes up, you're you're out the door. Just <laughs> don't pull that string. You talk enough about chess, which I, I totally get because you've been in this business for 15 years and you continue to be in this business. So, you know, this is a, a side hustle or passion project or whatever you want to call it for you. So uh, even though a lot of your contacts are through the chess world, that's um, that's not the focus of that podcast. But it is amazing. I mean, we've traveled together, as we'll, we'll, we'll talk about at some point. We've taken some trips, but... You've just, I mean, you've been to so many places and your memory of these places is quite impressive in, in these interviews. I mean, you, you remember a lot of details about all these different places and all these countries. So, Mike, what's, what's the current count of the number of countries you've been to? 
That's a great question, too. I mean, it's a little hazy because you've got a couple of countries that may be sovereign, may not be. And you've also got, you know, your one or two countries that you've only changed planes in, which I gen- generally do not count. Um, so I'm in the low 80s, uh, somewhere between 81 and 84 countries. Um, I can't give you an exact number, but as I creep closer to 100, you can rest assured I'm going to get the map out and be very careful to see when the actual 100th country is. Um, I just knocked out two more remaining ones. I don't have many left in Europe. But just in the last month, uh, I've been to Denmark and Romania, which were both new for me. Um, So I'm only missing like five or six European countries. Strangely, one of them is Norway, which you'd think as a chess player I would have definitely been to by now. Um, And I get that question a lot. People are, you know, get back from a trip and they're like, Mike, I I can't believe you haven't been to. And I'm like, well, I've been to like 83 other countries. I just haven't been to the one you happen to have gotten back from. Right. Um, I still have been to, I still have not been to more countries than I have been to. I think there's something around 195 sovereign countries. Um, so anyway, that's the long answer somewhere in the low eighties. Yeah. And as someone unlike me, our, our paths have diverged in that I've got, uh, two shining rays of light, my children, uh, keeping me from, from many adventures. Uh, you, you, I, I like your chances of getting to more countries in, in the coming years. Yeah, all I have burdening me is my cat, and luckily we've got a, a college student who'll come live at our house for a month whenever we need to take off. So, well, that's another big advantage I had. Uh, well, we had been when we were when we were full time teachers is that we had summers off, um, and that's really the trick. If you've got ten weeks off, you know I tended to maximize it. Um, now most of my trips are business trips instead of pleasure, um, which is not to say that you know reporting on the Olympiad or something is not somewhat pleasurable, but. Uh, uh, so my, my travels have shifted. I'm definitely slowing down. Um, and strangely, I have not touched South America. Um, so I think the minute I touch South America, I'm going to get to 100 because, you know, you can knock out 15 countries pretty quickly. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really surprising. And I've only I've been to Argentina um, and day trip to, to Uruguay. But Uruguay is the one next to it, right? I'm putting you putting you yeah. on the spot here yeah uruguay is just east of argentina and it's the the smallest country ever to win a world cup that's common knowledge yes then. <laughs> well yeah that that was recently in the news but right. so i you know i i always conflate as listeners know i conflate many things but among them are paraguay and uruguay uh so just wanted to make sure i had that right but anyway i do have you beat in that department and we'll probably come back to travel but let, let's get to chess um so you, you've also, I mean, we've talked, to, we had Dan Lucas of uh, Cover Stories with Chess Life, and you've made a couple appearances there due to your cover stories. So one of your many hats as a uh, chess person is to write articles, but you also, of course, cover events for chess.com, do videos for Chess Kid. Uh, so why don't you start by taking us through your daily life at home? I mean, you have so much going on. So what's a typical day like, Mike? That's an interesting question, too. Uh, well, I'll sort of walk you back to when Chess.com hired me. And uh, turns out it was a little bit of a, a fraught beginning, only because of what was happening in Chess.com's world. Um, but in 2013, I had been teaching chess for about a dozen years, uh, most of them in Charlotte, uh, where I have my own teaching business. And Chess.com wanted to expand their news division, and I had just won the previous Chess Journalist of the Year. Award. I, I think it was just my time in the rotation, uh, honestly. But I don't know what I, I don't know what I did that was so special in 2012. Um, in fact, I yeah I did go to the Olympiad that year. Okay, maybe that was it. But anyway, um, they called, and uh, of course I was very excited, and I did some work for them. And about a month after they began having me do freelance work, they bought Chess Vibes, which was um, 100% Chess News website. 
So I was there on the sidelines thinking, hey, wait a minute, guys, remember me, your news guy? <laughs> um, but luckily, it turned out brilliantly because Peter Doggers, who's the founder of Chess Vibes, is based in Europe. And there's so much chess news these days, they decided to hire both of us, was me more their American guy and Peter more their Europe and international guy. Um, but of course, there's so much chess that things have crossed over and I've had to travel to Europe and, and other places for different chess events because there's only one Peter and there's just way more chess than we ever thought there was going to be. Um, and then the other fortuitous thing that happened is uh, one of the main content creators for Chess Kid left and they needed to fill a void there. Um, so chess.com, as you've probably been told by Danny, he's been on your podcast, is like they like to hire people and not fill positions. And that was kind of true with me. Um, so very quickly, my work became about 50% chess kid, mostly creating content and marketing, and about 50% chess.com. Um, I'm pretty much the only employee left that kind of divides time into both websites, uh, not counting some of our support team members and things. Um, so that makes it a little bit challenging. So there has been days, Ben, where I have recorded a video on how the night moves and five minutes later i'm interviewing magnus carlson and i have to remember to change my my delivery and not speak like a like i'm talking to a child so it gets a little tricky but um i'll do some marketing i uh create videos i'll edit the lessons on chess kid um on chess.com i might edit an article i might write a news article i might change the homepage poll uh there's just a lot of five minute things that the user hopefully never sees that encompasses my job yeah it's one of those things where if they if you're doing your job right they don't notice you yeah i mean they notice the content and they might think oh i just wake up or write a news article and i you know go buy an ice cream um but once i do the very public and visible things on both websites there's a lot of back-end things and in fact on chess kid a lot of coaches that i've marketed to write to me when they have an issue how do i set up this how do i buy more accounts um you know i how do I um, do X, Y, or Z on the website? So a lot of it is, you know, coach management. And uh, we have a very, very good support team. We've got about 10 or 12 people that all they do is answer support tickets. Uh, you know them as like emails, you know, when you've got an issue on the website. So we probably get through more than 1,000 a day. I'm not exactly sure the number. Um, but I feel like that's much more robust than a lot of websites where you can't even reach a live person. Um, so yeah, a lot of it is just talking with coaches and making sure they're happy on the, on chess kid. Mike, I'm going to put you on the spot here because you're, uh, you're, you're mentioning, uh, chess kid and interfacing with coaches, uh, jog my memory a little bit that when Danny wrench came on the podcast, it was not long after, uh, he and Eric, your, um, esteemed president had pitched shark tank and he seemed fairly optimistic that maybe something would happen. But I haven't heard anything since. So are you at liberty? For, well, I don't even know if you know, but if you are, are you at liberty to say if there's any news on that front? Yeah, I can disclose. I think we were under a lot of non-disclosure agreements during the process, but they were cut just before the you got to go on TV uh, level. Um, and I don't remember if they gave an exact reason, but... Uh, yeah, we, we, things were progressing and, you know, a lot of internal communication was happening. We were getting pretty excited, but of course we couldn't tell anybody. Um, and I just don't know the exact reason that Shark Tank said no. Maybe it was because Chess Kid was already doing pretty well. Um, maybe because Chess Kid and Chess.com were, were too conflated as one entity. Um, but, you know, they also have their, their reasons. It could be that they just had somebody have a, you know, present a board game the week before and they were looking for more diversity. You just never know. Um, so yeah, it didn't quite 
didn't quite go down, it would have been some really tremendous exposure for us. Yeah, bummer. And I did like your guys' chances, but it, yeah, it could be that, that you were too successful already. Um, so what's your, so I've, of course, as a, as a chess teacher, I show some chess kid videos and try to steer kids to chess kid because it, it's a good product. Um, but basically every kid I've, who has gotten into it, you're always their favorite video presenter. So, and it's funny to me because I mean, obviously we go way back as teachers and you know, you've always been a, a good communicator, but what's your trick for getting into the mind of a kid? Like, how do you make the videos so accessible that, that, uh, that everyone, you know, is uh, stalking fun master Mike at nationals? Yeah, this is kind of the conceit of the website. I get the credit, but it's really our video animator that is the one doing all the heavy lifting. I mean, they come up to me at tournaments. They love, you know, Fun Master Mike, I love your videos. What what they're really inherently saying is they love the animations and the sound effects because we used to do those videos before when I was first at Chess Kid without video, with animations and sound effects, and we didn't get nearly the amount of love. Um, so I, I want to give a shout out to my team member. His name is Nasser. He lives in Pakistan. I've never met him, but he is awesome. In fact, he's so good with uh, metaphors in American culture that I send him the audio to uh, my videos, and he creates graphics around the audio. And I do speak in such a way that I know he can build a fun metaphor around what I'm saying, but I never directly email him and say, hey, at, you know, at minute one and 30 seconds, I want you to build this metaphor. He just figures it out. Um, and sends back the, the the final copy, the final edit. Uh, so it's quite amazing that he's able to do this. Uh, probably English is his second language. I never actually asked him. Um, but we just did a one the other day where I, I made this joke about space being the final frontier, and he immediately picked up on the fact that it was a Star Trek reference um, and made little pieces looking from like Star Trek. I hope we don't get sued by about that. But uh, um, So really, it's the animations and the sound effects. And Ben, I never thought this would happen, but the digital me is far more popular than the analog me. <laughs> um, maybe not to my good friends, but uh, to all the kids in the world. Um, and so I think I'm just teaching the same way, using some of the same jokes and illusions and metaphors that I always have, except that we just have this uh, very dynamic presentation, which is these video animations and sound effects that kids love. But uh, the other funny thing is when I go to events and kids hear my voice, it's like the a wizard of Oz stepping out from behind the screen. Right. Some kids, some kids don't know that I'm a real person. They just it hasn't quite sunk in because uh, my face has not come up in any of the videos. Maybe like one or two of them, but certainly not most of them. Um, and so about half the kids run toward me, wanting to meet me, get an autograph, and about the other half run away from me because they're scared that I'm flesh and bone. That's funny. And with with so many videos on Chess Kid at this point, Mike, is it getting hard to come up with new ideas yet? That is a good question a little bit. Um, so one way that Chess Kid is better than Chess.com at the moment, I'm going to throw our parent site under the bus. Um, however, this is about to be rectified. But anyway, on Chess Kid, all of the videos, all of the important videos are grouped into levels. So you go through them like a video game. Um, you have to you know, go through one video pass some questions. We call them lessons to get to go to the next video. So it's very organized. Um, on chess.com, we're about to implement this. It'll probably drop in a few months because people have been clamoring for years asking, hey, what order do I go through the videos in? And we're finally going to give them a very systematic way of doing it. Um, so for those videos, we are getting to a, a level. We're at like king level 72 now is what we call it. So we've got about 100 of these 
once you pass all the pawn, rook, knight, bishop, and queen levels. Um, and yeah, to, to find a cogent topic idea is getting tricky. Now, I could always have a lesson where I just show a game, but I never really believed in the, the didactic nature of just showing a game. I much more believed in picking a topic and showing three or four examples on that same topic. Um, we're probably getting to the level, Ben, where I need to start just doing specific openings. Um, I've kind of shied away from that because, you know, to be honest with you, if a, if a kid uh, has a coach that's taught him to play the Re Lopez and I show the Queen's Gambit, you know, it might be a little bit off-putting to some coaches to force a kid to go through that material. But we're, you know, by the time you get to King level 70, you're probably a pretty dedicated kid and you need to learn more openings anyway. So that's probably where we're headed now. If you've got any ideas, please do let me know, Ben. Well, I'm surprised that that you prefer like specific themes to showing games. I guess part of it is because it's uh, tailored to like an individual watching. But is that something that came to you from your time from the teaching that you've done, or like what what uh, drives that philosophy? Yeah, I think a lot does come from the teaching that I've done. I mean, when you show a full game, yeah, there might be 20 ideas, but they might not relate to each other. Whereas if you really want a kid to hone in on a specific concept, I'm a much bigger fan of showing a position where that concept is the the, the prevailing one, uh, you know, playing the move and then showing another position where that exact same concept is the most important. Um, also remember that for our level system, once you watch the video, you have to answer questions based on the theme. And if I show a full game, the questions that we would ask would have to be based, I guess, on that game. And I probably would have already talked about the main points of the game. So it doesn't quite flow as well in our level system. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it's partly to do with my background in teaching and partly with just the design of the level system. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Um Let's pivot over to chess playing, Mike. So we first played, I'm a couple years older than you, but we played sometime when we were in high school and then, you know, obviously played a lot of blitz games and stuff over the years as uh, friends. Um, but why don't you give give people who, who've read your stuff and seen you online and all that, like just a quick, uh, quick uh, two minute encapsulation of your chess playing career. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think the first time we played was at the Danker tournament where you were the Pennsylvania state champion. Yes. Um, I think I was a North. Well, I know I was a North Carolina State champion. I know where I grew up. Um, but you forgot to tell the viewers, the listeners. I make that mistake all the time because <laughs> when my background is chess.com videos, I'm always using the word viewers. Um, you forgot to tell your listeners the most important chess games we played were when we were roommates and we ordered Thai food and we had to play a blitz game to decide who went downstairs to pick up the Thai food. Yeah, those were some uh, some intense games. We did not. We lived in a fourth floor walk up, so neither of us wanted to go to, and you couldn't just buzz them in. So high stakes when you're a, a lazy twenty three year old and you don't want to go down the stairs to get the food. And um, I'm saddened to report that I, I think you probably won about seventy five percent of the games. Does that sound about right? I was pretty focused on my curry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I would say so. But uh, so the background is I grew up in Charlotte, which is where I still live today. Um, I started playing when I was four. Uh, my very first nationals, to be you know, to be frank, ended up being my most famous nationals because it's the same nationals that took place at the end of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. Um, so, unbeknownst to me, as a six-year-old, I would end up playing a movie star because I played Josh Whiteskin in the third round of the nationals that year. Now, the movie will tell you it took place in Chicago. But that's only because Charlotte was barely on the map when the movie came out. It actually took place in Charlotte in 1986. Um, and Josh's dad mentioned me very briefly in the book that I 
faltered in some hypomodern opening. I'm, I'm quite sure I didn't know what hypomodern openings were when I was six years old. Um, so I did win one nationals two years later, the same one, the K3 division. Um, with a little bit of chagrin, I admit I won no further nationals, even though I was right there on board one in the last round a couple different years. Um, I did win the inaugural Bug House Nationals, um, but that was a heady time in Bug House. We actually had to tell the tournament director collectively what the rules to Bug House were. Uh, it was so unknown. That was back in 92 in Tallahassee, Florida, the very first middle school Bug House Nationals. Um, I did win the North Carolina High School Championship five times, although that also comes with a caveat. I did not fail a grade. I won it in eighth grade all the way through 12th grade. Um, and then, uh, yeah, got to got to university. I, I discovered uh, discovered girls and and maybe beer, and uh, did not exactly play a whole lot of chess in in, in college. And then uh, and then that story picks up back with us after graduation, where I moved to New York City. We went to work for the same organization, and you would think New York would spur more chess growth, but actually, no. When you're teaching chess all day, I just wasn't that inspired to compete a lot. So uh, yeah, my last rated classical game was like about ten years ago or something. Yeah, for some reason, my chess rating also peaked at the age of 18 when I went to college. F- funny how that works. Um, for <laughs> for those of us who don't keep our nine- nose to the grindstone, like I know that a lot of listeners uh, do. And Mike, uh, this is something I, I didn't prep you for this, and um, we didn't uh, we haven't talked about it in a while. But you have mentioned to me in the past, like. Uh, that when you would play tournaments, you would get nervous before games. And I know this is something that, that uh, Grandmaster Pascal Charbonneau touched on when he was talking about just Paco Vallejo was just very recently on the show, wasn't talking about nerves per se, but was just talking about the stress of being a chess professional. Um, could, do you mind talking a little bit more about like uh, uh, what that was like, even though you were very accomplished as a young player, it's still you, you felt a pressure when playing? Yeah, and it never really left me when I played as an adult because it was so ingrained that before a game you get nervous, even if I was playing somebody that was higher rated and I wasn't didn't have the same win expectation. But um, I would say in the average tournament, I didn't eat very well. I didn't sleep very well. I would have digestive issues. We'll just leave it at that. Hmm. Um, you know, almost always my scholastic career, except for national tournaments, I was the favorite. And there's just not a lot of... Uh, positivity that can come with you know uh, only being able to be upset every single chess game uh upset is in the sense that you know somebody weaker than you beats you that's that that usage of the word upset um so uh it was just physiologically how my body dealt with it i'm not proud of it i wish it wasn't that way um and on a good tournament i would be so focused on the games it would sort of you know it would repress after a couple of minutes um but uh yeah it it just I don't think that playing chess competitively many, many weekends out of the year would have elongated my life. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, although when, I think there was a study that grandmasters do live longer. Yeah. I think I may have put that in one of my chess.com. Ah, that's where I read that. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Don't, don't believe everything you read. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that for certain people, it may have helped them live longer. Um, it's just for me personally, um, the, the the thrill I got from winning no longer outpaced the um, sort of the desire to not lose. And when you're a kid, you want to participate in anything where you're winning trophies and getting lots of, of, of plaudits and, 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 you know, and, and, and high fives. But uh, when you get to be a little bit older, 
you do realize what you really get the most satisfaction out of. Now, I still love playing Blitz. I've played in a couple of Blitz tournaments, um, but I just enjoy tennis and snowboarding and I, some other things where I have no expectations at all. It's not like when I hit the slopes, anybody's like, hey, you know, he was in the X Games. I expect him to do a, a you know, a 720 on this half pipe. Um, there's just none of that when I when I participate in some other sports. But um, but there's still some of that in chess, even though in the chess world, I'm basically a nobody nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying yeah to the nobody thing, obviously, you're a somebody, but I, I definitely, I mean, I can relate to that. And I think it's important to talk about because I think a lot of listeners will be able to relate to it. Obviously, you know, we we work in chess, so we love chess, that's, that's well established. Uh, but I don't think that, like, I think it needs to be talked about as something that that's normal and that a lot of people have to deal with. I mean, it's, it's, it's a performance sport. Um, and it's, you know, uh, obviously based uh, purely on uh, mental acuity and ability to, to limit your mistakes. So of course, that that can be stressful. Um, so I, I'm with you. I mean, for me, it's, it's not as acute when I actually play, but it's like, it's enough of, um, an impediment that, you know, it's, it's part of the, uh, calculus when you think about, like, when I think about, okay, if I wanted to, like, for me to, to play without, like, uh, trying to, trying to really put my best foot forward isn't really a option, but putting my best foot forward is also, uh, um, something i'm not willing to do right now so yeah i mean it's it's i think it's totally totally normal for those of us who are not like uh you know professional grandmasters or people just uh really pushing at the moment yeah and what i tried to do was um you know take a page out of golf actually because in golf if you're standing over a putt um that's worth you know the entire tournament you obviously don't want to be shaking you want to have your normal putting stroke and just uh you know have that putt be the same as your first putt in the tournament. And so a lot of golfers, they talk about the idea of a routine and going through the exact same routine, no matter how long or short the putt or whether it's a a moment with a lot of gravitas or just a normal putt. So I tried to have a routine before each game where I'd go to my hotel room 15 minutes before and I close my eyes. And then five minutes before I would always look at some chess right before a game because it just, it filled me with some confidence that my opponent might play into the thing I just looked at five minutes before. Um, and those things helped a little bit, but I would encourage people to have some of the same issues to go through a routine before each game, because the more you can make it routine, then the less nervous you get. Um, uh, a good example would be, um, you know, the first time you enter a new school, obviously you're very nervous, but you know, by day 20, it's a routine, everybody, everything's normal. So, um, that would be my only little bit of advice to, uh, to deal with this, the stress that I had. Yeah, that's good advice. And there's a good book called The Power of Habit about sort of how you can, um, how you can in, like develop certain routines where you, you're able to access your unconscious, uh, you know, part of your brain rather than your conscious, which is especially challenging, I think, in chess because it's a cognitive exercise um, as opposed to a physical where really all you need to do is, uh, you know, not be thinking. Um, so. All right, Mike, what's next on my list here? Why don't we, um, well, let's talk about chess teaching. Um, so I'll tell listeners again, you know, we have to tell some stories because we go way back. So Mike and I, after getting to know each other from being at the same tournaments when we were both in high school, we got hired by an organization called Chess in the Schools, shout to Chess in the Schools, uh, when Mike was fresh out of college and I was a couple years out of college. And Mike was like this teaching wonderkind. Uh, we were we were both, uh, you know, 
pretty strong young players rated around 2200 USCF, I guess. Um, but Mike somehow came, f- arrived fully formed as a teacher. So we had to go through this, uh, this teaching training, which I desperately needed. I was not a great communicator um, and didn't have much teaching experience. But Mike somehow, even at the age of 22, and this is back when there are not that many chess teachers, as we've talked about before on the podcast, he was very good at communicating, had his material fully fleshed out, like knew how to present things. Um, and, you know, somewhat uh, infamously, at least to me, like, you know, the rest of us are learning how to teach like a queen and rook or queen and king checkmate or something like that, which believe it or not, I had no idea how to present to someone. Uh, we, whereas Mike is like able to teach the two bishops checkmate, like basically perfectly. So how did you get so much experience teaching like so young? Wow, that's just, uh, can you keep talking more about this, <laughs> this formative time in your career? Um, <laughs> Uh, well, I did teach some. Thank you, by the way, for all the compliments. I I, I taught some in high school and in college, um, although I wouldn't say obviously as an I think a ninth grader. Yeah, I started teaching as a ninth grader. Um, my mom had to drive me to the chess club, and uh, <laughs> um, I was a little bit lost, especially with classroom control and like really figuring out a way to get the kids' attention, that sort of thing. Um, so I can't give you a reason why my lessons you thought were a little more cogent than yours. Um, I, I definitely take a lot more pride in my teaching than my playing. So, you know, when people come up to me and compliment me on my teaching, that means a lot more to me than any of my chess accomplishments. And there's nothing wrong with that in my book. It's just, you know, I'm always going to be more famous as a chess teacher or more lauded as a chess teacher, which I take good pride in. Um, I think uh, witnessing some good teachers has helped me throughout the years um, improve my skills even more. I think one of the big issues with a lot of chess teachers, especially when you're teaching a whole class of kids, there's always going to be those three or four kids that are better than everybody. And a lot of chess teachers, when they show an idea, they'll call on those three or four kids every single question. And, of course, those kids get the questions right. And then the teacher feels fulfilled that they've taught a good lesson because this, you know, they're getting this great feedback when they're really not relating to every single kid. That's something I definitely had to learn because there's a temptation in chess teaching to you know, call on the brightest kids. You'll feel great about yourself. Um, I don't have a great answer for why um, I was able to jump right into the role. I guess people say sometimes you're a natural-born teacher, and I guess it was true with me. I really don't have another explanation. Okay. Um, all right. And uh, okay. So while we're on the topic of uh, chess teaching, Mike, we might as well get it out of the way. Um, chess improvement advice. So you're you're a good chess teacher. I mean, you you know you've I know you you don't have as many time for students as you used to. But what did you, what did you what do you find yourself recommending to people? Uh, and obviously, you know, you got to give us a, a book recommendation as well. Yeah, great question. Well, um, I will tell you, I was not a very good student of chess growing up. Um, I mean, my coach gave me homework. I think I may have done it occasionally. Um, I didn't know a lot of openings, Ben. I was pretty good at end games only because almost all my games were going to the end game. I wasn't beating anybody in, in 10 minutes. Um, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. There's a guy uh, who I'm still friends with. I actually just went to the, the football World Cup with him in Russia last month. Um, but he was one year older than me. We often had the same rating growing up, but he had a completely different style than me. We would often play side-by-side at tournaments. And he would be so sort of laissez-faire. You know, he'd hang a knight on move seven, and I would be mortified. 
Like, how is my friend, like the number two player in the tournament, doing this? And then, you know, sure enough, he would win like five minutes later because he just had this really super aggressive style. And I was always very envious of him. Um, But the one thing that I did growing up that I think gave me success is that I didn't want to be outworked at the board. So I was a complete grinder at the board, especially when I got a bad position, which was often. Um, I would just sit there and labor and find stupid tricks or, you know, find my way out of a messy situation and, you know, always make myself difficult to beat. So that's actually goes back to what we said a few minutes ago about why I think chess was so physically demanding is because so many of my games went four or five or six hours. And so a typical tournament, I would just never have an easy game. Um, So when it comes to my recommendation, this is going to sound kind of silly, but I just think you have to work harder than your opponent at the board. Now, of course, the problem is if you don't have good fundamentals, which kind of does relate to me, you might top out at a little bit of a lower level, which is why I never quite got past 2300. Um, I mean, I cleared 2300, but never, never like, you know, sniffed I am or anything like that. Um, as far as book recommendations, well, obviously you should do all your chess kid lessons. I think we know that. Hmm. Um, but, uh, I really liked Capablanca's best chess endings. Me too. Um, yeah. And in fact, I think I've lost my copy, which is quite sad, but, uh, they are both great for, for being a student and for being a teacher because they're like 60 or some odd ready-made end game positions. And you do get the moves that lead up to those positions, but they are not, uh, theoretical. They're very practical end games. You know, sometimes Capablanca is not up any material at all, but he controls one open file, you know, or maybe he's got this very, very subtle queen side pawn majority advantage and it takes him 25 moves to convert. Um, so I really think that that book helped me a lot growing up. Um, you know, it just showed me you can outplay your opponent from an equal position in the end game. Um, that'd be my best my best book recommendation. And who writes it? Is it is it Irving Chernev or something? Yeah, that sounds right. It's okay. on my it's on my shelf. It's one of my favorites too. I would say, especially if you're in the rating range, say fourteen hundred to two thousand, something like that. I mean, it's because of the way it's presented. It, it a lot of people can benefit from it. Um, Absolutely. Also, and also it, because Capablanca was a genius. That doesn't hurt either. Yeah, that does help just a bit. Um, and, you know, your guests have given so many of the other classics that repeating them seems a little bit, uh, you know, not terribly useful. But, you know, obviously, Silman and all and all those books are great. Um, but again, I didn't really dig into a lot of books myself growing up. Um, so some openings books because I played I played some offbeat openings that require you to not, you know, not lose in seven moves. You have to know a couple of very specific things. But, uh, but yeah, let's, uh, let's go with Capablanca's best chess ending. Ec- excellent. Uh, that is, uh, I approve of that recommendation. Um, okay. Uh, question from friend of the podcast and supporter of the podcast, Chris Wainscott. Uh, Chris asks, as a fellow chess journalist, Chris asks, what is the impact the current golden age of American chess, or sorry, how has the current golden age of American chess affected your career as a chess journalist? What new opportunities and challenges have arisen as a result? And there's more, but we'll pause. So uh, let's start with that. Well, if I'm going to write a story about American players and then they end up winning a tournament, there, it's much more likely that story gets promoted to the cover of Chess Life. Um, so there is that issue. Um, I began my chess journalism career thanks to a reference from Jennifer Shahadi, who's still the Chess Life online editor. Um, And she mentioned to Dan Lucas, who up until recently was the editor of Chess Life, um, that there was this guy with a journalism degree, that's what I studied, 
Uh, and so she got me my first couple of gigs. And it turns out one of my first gigs at Chess Life was the 2008 Olympiad. It was the very first Olympiad I ever covered. Um, I was actually at the, near the beginning of a uh, one-year sabbatical I took from teaching. Uh, I traveled around the world for one year, went to about 30, 33 countries. Um, and I told Dan, I said, hey, I'm going to be in Europe. Do you want somebody to cover the Olympiad? And his response was, yeah, uh, we don't pay expenses anyway. So if we're going to have a dedicated reporter there, why would I say no to that? Um, and that year, USA won double bronze, which got the uh, the article promoted to the homepage, to the front page of Chess Life. Um, and there was a couple more instances of that, of Nakamura winning tournaments, Komsky winning tournaments. Um, of course, you'll know 2008 was about when the St. Louis Chess Club was being formed. So the events had a lot more a lot more standing, a lot more gravitas, higher prize fund. And people want to read about top players. We've we've learned that in our analytics on chess.com. Um, for better or for worse, there could be a really awesome open tournament with a fantastic finish. But unless there was a 2,700 where somebody cheated, <laughs> we're not going to get the number of, of readers than we would uh, otherwise because people just love the cream of the crop. Um, I can't say that it's resulted in a lot more gigs, the fact that Americans are doing so well in the chess world. Um, but it has created some of the gigs being promoted to get more readers if it's a chess.com story or be promoted to the, to the front page of Chess Life if it's, if it's a Chess Life story. So, Yeah, and I, I had the pleasure of visiting uh, you and Peter Doggers when you guys were covering the World Championship in New York in 2016. And you guys are serious journalists. I mean, I, I hope it goes without saying, but I mean, you, you know, you you take your craft very seriously and, you know, you guys would like, you know, Peter would like not have a drink because he had to go right and like ridiculous stuff like that. Um, so and I know that like, you know, when when I can't remember the story, obviously, you'll be able to help me with this. But when someone died, you're like calling the coroner's office to get the information. So despite covering chess, you you managed to uh, use your real journalistic chops. Yeah, thanks. I mean, when I go to an event to cover as a journalist, it basically doubles my workload because all of my normal website maintenance for chess.com and chess kid doesn't go away. Um, so a typical tournament, like I go to St. Louis twice a year, I do all my chess kid work in the morning. The round usually begins around one. Obviously, I'm glued to the games, you know, taking notes, making sure I'm following the games. I'm interviewing players. Round ends at six or seven takes me i'm a pretty slow methodical writer it takes me about three hours to write each of those articles and a lot of it's not the writing a lot of it's the formatting you know creating the table cropping the picture oh that stuff is agonizing that. yeah yeah that's what takes up most of the time so it's a full day and you know you repeat that uh, for the u.s championship it's 11 rounds it's even longer than a grand chess tour event it's it's these are long days i'm still lucky to be in the position to, to have that role um that's kind of a typical day in the life of a chess journalist at a big tournament now, the World Championship is actually not one of the more interesting events to cover because you only have one game. Everybody's covering every angle, so to get anything new is, is tricky. I mean, you know, you're writing about, oh, Carlson used the same pen two rounds in a row. Um, and then you have almost no access to the players. Um, and when you get to the press conference, you have mainstream media asking, you know, Magnus loses a game and the mainstream media asks, uh, how do you feel? Which, you know. They don't know to not ask such a question like that to a chess player who's obviously 
you know, we know how he feels as chess players ourselves. Right. Yeah. Um, they should ask something a little more specific. Now, if you ask me to go cover an archery event, I would probably ask a pretty, uh, you know, uh, anodyne question as well, because I just don't know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, I will say, though, in 2014, the World Championship was in Sochi and nobody was there. And Magnus absolutely needed people to play basketball and soccer against. Um, so we had access to Magnus there because we would play sports for three hours and put the ball down and pick up our cameras and he'd answer our questions. So, um, But New York was too big of a city. He was running all around. So um, there was another part okay, of your well, question. Okay, well, hold on. Ben. We got it. Yeah, I'll get to the other part of the question, but a couple of things. First, we got to get this, the scouting report. Jonathan Korblau always already gave us one Magnus basketball scouting report, but I know you, I, I mentioned to uh, my Patreon supporters, you've you've played basketball with magnus you've played tennis with hikaru you've played tennis with rex sinkfeld uh who knows what other uh chess luminaries you've uh you've uh played random sports with but give us give us some scouting reports mike okay i'll scout all these players for you so magnus plays basketball like chess he he methodically inches his way into the lane back to the basket inches his way inches his way in he doesn't take undeserved shots and then finally when he sees that's an funny because Korblock called him a gunner i think or maybe he just maybe he just hit a low percentage that day but he shoot oh he shoots a lot i'm just okay. saying i don't think he takes wild shots with a hand in his face gotcha um i think he, he definitely inches you down and but you know i'll also say we played basketball several times at the 2014 world championship and i was guarding magnus a decent amount and you know my first thought because in journalism you shouldn't become the story my first thought is don't hurt magnus <laughs> right yeah <laughs> I wasn't often on his team, and I just, yeah, I'm not saying uh, uh, any of his points were undeserved, but we were not doing a, you know, um, hack a Viking, you know. We yeah, were not. especially the head area. Like, okay, if you give him a body blow, he can still play chess, but if you, like, elbow him in the brain area, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's unacceptable. Absolutely. And he actually caught a cold in the middle of the tournament. And also, by the way, at the World Championship, every third day is an off day, so there's plenty of time to do sports. Um, he caught a cold, and he... He came out, and you could tell his team did not want him to be on that basketball court <laughs> on the day. And he was watching for a while, and you know, then he hit, he shot some layups, and then before you knew it, he was playing with us. So he uh, and he would even stay up late and watch the NBA playoffs, um, at, you know, three or four in the morning in, in Russia. So he's complete sports junkie. I've talked to him before about the ESPN Thirty for Thirty series, and he can name like every member of the Detroit Bad Boys team. Wow! Um, I mean, he absolutely knows his stuff. So when you book Magnus on the show, you can just talk about the NBA the whole time. Yeah, I've been meaning to book him, but you know, I'm just so busy, just just haven't had a chance. So <laughs> you'll get your turn, Magnus. Don't worry. All right. So ten- tennis scouting report: Hikaru, big serve doesn't get his first serve in a whole lot so when his serve is on you're in trouble if not you've got a chance um i've played tennis against maxime who's uh a little lanky he does get the ball back in a strange way maxime uh, vashir Lagrave for the uninitiated anyway go on yeah uh, now ray robson's tennis game has improved a lot in fact he made the webster university tennis team i believe his wow. junior or senior year so i used to beat ray pretty easily and now i think he's beat me the last couple of matches um josh friedel great tennis player when he's on i just i can barely score a game off of him. oh wow he, he and, undersold uh, it when he was on a uh, perpetual chess he did yeah he he still thinks to this day that maybe i'm like close to an equal but in his heart of hearts he knows that <laughs> he's a much better player and maybe then, he's, uh, maybe he's just trying to hustle you from the uh the chess player playbook i don't know, i think it's just his, his personality he's just too much of a nice guy um, and then I've played Rex, uh, I don't know, 
I would say, 15 or 20 times. And because most of his playing partners are in the 60-plus range, he thinks I'm God's gift to tennis because, <laughs> I, <laughs> because I can run still. And uh, so, yeah, I appreciate all of the, the love that Rex gives me. But, uh, um, yeah, Rex, Rex handles the racket pretty well. And I think he's 71 or 72 now. He can still get around the court a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, my, my ability to cover the whole court as a sub-40-year-old still gives me the, the edge of a Rex. Gotcha. Okay, and we'll get back to the second half of Chris's uh, question in a second. But one other thing I want you to just sort of um, to to expand on a little bit is uh, how you craft a story. So, you, you know, you're covering all these chess events. And, you know, um, any any journalist or anyone who's thought about the craft of journalism can can imagine how it, it might be difficult to to um, create a storyline from uh, events that can blend together in your head. So if you're like covering the U.S. championship and watching the games, how much are you thinking about the narrative? And then when, when you sit down to write something, do you just start with the words or do you start with a structure? Wow, that is a great question. I, definitely what you've asked does go on my head a lot. Um, if I'm covering U.S. championship, that's 11 rounds. And I, I personally do not like to do straight news for 11 rounds. Um, so I look for interesting stats. I look for openings that have repeated over the tournament. Um, you know, there's sometimes where if you're really glued into the games, um, and this has happened many times, where I've said, you know, pawn to b4 was the winning move for the fifth time in this event. And that can be a neat thing to lead with. Um, so in my lead, in my first couple of sentences, I do try to find a hook to grab the reader's attention uh, to, to explain why that round was unique to all the other rounds. Um, I do put sports analogies in. Working for a website with people that read from all over the world, certain sports work and certain don't. Um, I definitely, um, I get a lot of readers that claim I'm a little bit too American-centric, but I'll also tell you that when it comes to the web, some people are just looking for a way to tear down America. And of course, we all know there are are some reasons why we deserve that. (laughs) Um, But uh, but yeah, and I know the comment section to internet articles is just uh, a cesspool of of, of, people. people's uh, own inner demons but uh um there are some people that think oh he's american doesn't understand the world when you know by and large i've probably been to more countries than than you mr commenter have <laughs> um probably been to your country too even but yeah i definitely am thinking about it throughout the round and and that's why i can't really write my articles as the round is going on because i'm looking for this synergy and these linkages that i don't really know about until the round is over um so, uh, but then when it comes time to write, because of deadline pressure, whether it's actual pressure or self-imposed, I, I just kind of start typing and moving things around as need be. Um, th- you know, there are some times we're supposed to be unbiased, and I definitely don't root for players or anything. But uh, sure, you don't. Well, <laughs> I, I root for players that give me access. Right, it, that makes I'll, sense. Yeah, I'll put it that way. But you know, that, let's say Black has won every game in a round, and, and I really want to have this awesome lead about you know, Black whitewashing okay no pun intended but uh in that sense i will root for somebody that fulfills my lead right that That, doesn't make me change my structure that makes sense yeah that's good insight okay let's get back to the other half of chris wayne scott's question which is lastly what impact if any would fabi winning the world championship have on chess journalism here in the usa chess journalism um well, I don't know that would create more chess journalists or new, more newspapers to bring back chess columns or anything. We're going to get um, all the money, Chris. Once <laughs> once Bobby wins the championship, open blank checks are coming. <laughs> well, uh, I think it would help chess as a whole. That goes without saying. Yeah. Uh, 
when Danny was on the show, he may have mentioned this stat that he 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 loves to to, to repeat. And I don't know if it's true. I, I'm guessing it is. Of course, he wouldn't say it. But when Magnus plays a world championship, Danny always says that we get five thousand new Chess.com members just from the country of Norway every single day of the world championship. Always. Um, Shit, that's crazy. Yeah, so we are definitely doing, obviously, our our due diligence in a content standpoint to promote this world championship as we would with any other. But, you know, about half the chess.com members are American, so we're expecting to be have more eyeballs on it. But we're also making sure our servers can handle it because we're expecting the average number of daily users to go way up. Um, does that translate into more chess journalists? Maybe not. Now, the number of views we get on our news reports is through the roof. Um, a couple of my reports from Sochi got like more than 200,000 people to read, which is far and away the most widely read news reports I've ever done, even though I'm just covering one game. Huh. And I have barely any unique quotes to work with, which is, which is what we really want as chess journalists. We want a scoop. We want something unique that only we have, um, which in a world championship is, is very tough. But uh, yeah, and if he wins, um, well... I can't even hazard a guess as to how many views we're going to get on all of our articles. I imagine the mainstream press will be contacting people like me and Peter Doggers asking for, you know, uh, our our take on what's going on, that sort of thing. So we might be a little bit busier. I know this happened in New York in 2016. The Norwegian press was interviewing me every round because, frankly, the press interviewing press is what happens at the World Championship. We have nobody else to talk to. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I imagine I'll be I'll be busy just talking with any news outlet that wants a, I, I hate to use the word experts take, but since I'm a chess journalist, they often look to me that way. Yeah, I mean, you can translate what's happening to those who are just kind of parachuting in. Exactly. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, who knows? I mean, definitely can't hurt and Stuff like more page views, I guess, could ultimately translate to more opportunities. But yeah, it's hard to imagine sort of a a, a, a watershed moment, but for for journalists per se. Um, you mentioned you mentioned Chess dot com, like uh, trying hard to market some like the opportunities that come around with the World Championship cycle. So what what would be some examples of that? How do you guys try to get the word out? Uh, well, actually, the word is mostly organic because. When people hear about a chess world championship going on and they think to themselves, hey, I, you know, I played chess growing up or chess sounds interesting. If you type in chess to Google, you're probably going to land on our site being number one. I mean, SEO is a huge part of our business. So a lot of it is very back end and it just happens organically. Um, we might be doing some sort of promotional videos or things. We, you know, we're obviously trying to get a big presence for Fabiano on our website. Um, I don't, there's various ways that's, uh, that we could do that it kind of depends on the busyness of his schedule. So that remains to be seen. Um, you know, Magnus has had this big documentary made about him. It'd be cool if Fabiano had a similar type of documentary made about him before the world championship. Um, so we might try to piggyback that sort of idea. Oh, that would be awesome. That Magnus documentary is great. Yeah. Unfortunately for Fabiano, that Magnus documentary was filmed over the course of many years, maybe even a decade. Um, so I'm not sure what we could turn around before the world championship, but, but we'll see, because I believe that, you know, whether he wins or loses, having an American play for the world championship for the first time since Komsky in 94 or five, I, 
I hate saying dates and stats on a on a podcast, but uh, you know, people often say it was the first one since Fisher, but it depends on whether or not you count the the Komsky Karpov match in Alista. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the the point is, uh, let's be let's be reasonable. Nobody really watched that match compared to the Fisher Spassky <laughs> match. Right. Nobody outside the chess world. So yeah, a lot of it is just completely um, you know organic. It just happens. Um, oh, by the way, I, I I do want to say when it comes to Chris's question, news or if you want to call it the news division of Chess dot com is absolutely a, a, I wouldn't even say a loss leader. It's just a service to the chess community. We spend, I don't even know what the amount is, traveling to tournaments, you know, all of the the time I spend that comes out of my normal salary, you know, um, to write these news articles. And news articles are free. We don't really monetize them. We don't push people to upgrade. You can, as a free member, read all of our news articles. So it absolutely is just one of those services we're trying to provide to the chess world. Um, and you know, for that reason, it's just going to be hard to ever make a a huge career out of chess journalism without an organization like Chess.com, who really believes in, um, you know, giving these players their 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 credit, and that often means you know sending reporters to tournaments. So I feel very lucky working for an organization that, yeah, we do have a budget, but at the same time, we're not expecting the news division to to carry the load for the company. Yeah, uh, the the chess world generally is um, is is so lucky to have uh, people like you and Peter Doggers and uh, um, Tarjay covering chess events. Um, and yeah, it's uh, not something that that is done for the money. <laughs> suffice it to say. So yeah, we, we we all appreciate it, even if we show our appreciation by uh, haranguing you in the comments section. Yeah, I I don't mind. I mean, I love reader feedback, and we do get we get stuff wrong all the time. That's the nature of online journalism and trying to get something out, you know, three hours after the event is over. And remember, uh, Chris is talking about an American golden age, but we're living in a chess player golden age. In that, when an event is happening, we get to watch it live with grandmaster commentary. We get in depth news articles a couple hours after it ends. Uh, ben, when you and I were growing up, an event would take place in Europe, and we wouldn't even see those games until six months later. Yeah. Um, so just much of a ball game. Um, oh, oh, by the way, I remember you you mentioned uh, uh, an anecdote that I forgot to explain. You were talking about verifying a chess player's death. Yes. Um, yeah, and so uh, I don't mean to um, make light of, of tragedy, but it seems every time a notable chess player dies, I am somewhere in the world and I can't really access my, my library to get a, a, a proper obituary out. Um, so the story you're referring to is on my birthday, I found out that, uh, William Lombardi died, but I wasn't in town. So I didn't have access to all of my library that has all of his, uh, you know, biographical information. So, uh, I'd already had plans to go out to dinner. So I brought my laptop to dinner. I ordered a dozen oysters and while they're being shucked, I went out to the patio and called the coroner's office because at that time it wasn't. I didn't get a second um, source on his death. I just got some internet chatter about it. Um, so yeah, while my dinner was being prepared, I was on the phone with the coroner's office trying to verify that he'd passed away. Um, so we do try to go back and, and you know get an initial obituary out and then get uh, quotes and reminiscing from top players and, and add to the obituary as it goes on, but. Um, yeah, this is just uh, the, the the nature of always being on the road. Is that you know sometimes important unexpected chess events happen when uh, um, when you're least prepared to to really give the the player their due. 
Yeah, and uh, another example of uh, going above and beyond because you know you're you're a salaried employee, so um, probably probably not going to get fired if you don't take that step. But it's good that you uh, you take your work seriously. Uh, one thing I wanted to follow up on regarding uh, the upcoming World Championship in London is uh, if you're going, I'll be there. Nice. I, I will not. <laughs> so, <laughs> you'll have to you'll have to give me the scouting report but um but yeah should should be exciting um do what what other uh what other trips do you have planned good question well um i'll be at the olympiad in batumi in the republic of georgia for the entire time boom um obviously the world championship um, a lot of my travels are chess kid related i may go to the world cadet championship which is in the northern part of Spain. However, that's right before the World Championship. Um, and, you know, at some point, I don't know if I can be on the road for that long. Um, but I do go to several chess kit events with, you know, a marketing booth explaining how the site works. So I'll go to a couple large state championships and national events. I don't really have those planned out yet. Um, chess.com also has uh, an annual meetup. Since we work all over the world, we all work from home. Uh, we meet once a year for a week. Usually in the Caribbean, this year is no different. That'll be in Jamaica. Um, so my first time going there, that'll be country number, I don't know, 85 or something. Uh, that'll be neat. Um, that's coming up in September. So those are, yeah, those are my immediate travels. Excellent. You're going to sneak in any um, extreme travel odysseys while you're like in between the work-related travel? I sure hope to. Um, in fact, when I'm in Europe, I do kind of want to honor the legacy of Anthony Bourdain and his very first episode of no reservations his original travel channel show was in paris um so one idea i have for extreme travel odysseys is to go recreate the places he went in paris uh but that would you know it's tough because like the world championship is a three plus week event so to add on another couple days it's it's a lot um but you know there's all those off days the world championship maybe i can go to paris for you know 24 or 36 hours and then come back or something but yeah i definitely hope to um combining business travel with pleasure travel is definitely a goal of mine okay and uh so speaking of the podcast mike so you're you've got i think six or seven episodes under your belt as we, as we record this what what has surprised you so far or what like how has how has doing this podcast uh been as compared to your expectations going in Oh, great question. I think uh, people's openness has surprised me. Um, I've already contacted a few people that are reasonably famous documentarians, and they've been all about it. People are really tickled to go and talk about, well, they just talk about themselves, of course. But, um, you know, when you're first starting a podcast and you have no episodes, it's a little bit hard to email somebody and say, hey, I'm a podcast host, because you're not. You're, right. you're only a podcast host in your mind. Um so uh, now that I've got seven or eight episodes that are live, I feel like I've got a bit of a, you know, a catalog of things they can listen to and see if this podcast is right for them. Um, so that's been kind of neat. Um, people just generally have said yes. I really haven't yeah. had anybody that's come back to me and said, no, this doesn't interest me. I just want to interject a story. So when I was starting Perpetual Chess, I've talked a bit before about how this was something that was kicking around in my mind for like a year. And I just I never couldn't decide if I was going to pull the trigger. And then finally I found uh, my, my great editor, Matthew Passy, who like, once I had a tech person, I felt like, okay, I can, I can do this and I, I'm just going to do it. But then, you know, I'm old friends with Greg Shahadi and Jan Gustafsson and, and you are, were probably my third, you know, most well-known 
friend in the chess world, but I didn't feel like I should ask my three friends, you know, right off the bat. So I felt like I should try to ask someone else, you know, who, uh, you know, who I didn't know. Um, so, uh, I reached out to Nazi Pekitsi through Greg. And even though, I mean, she's, uh, you know, us women's champion and, uh, very well known, but, um, I remember waiting for her to reply because it felt like I didn't, I wasn't going to have a podcast until she replied. Cause yes, yes, I can do like, yes, I can shoot the shit with my friends and call it a podcast, but until someone I don't know is willing to, to be interviewed, uh, it's not really a podcast. So I remember like once she replied and like once, once that interview was happening, it's like, okay, this is a thing, you know, whereas before, even though I had a couple interviews recording, it's like, I, you know, I could have talked to friends anyway. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. I had all those same thoughts. And, you know, one of the things popped in my mind right away is I remember Jesse Cry flying to the Canadian Open, like in, Al- uh, in in Alberta or something, and bringing like a bicycle seat and pedals with him. He won the Canadian Open, and then he went and rented a mountain bike, put his seat and pedals on that bike, and rode five straight centuries the next five days. Uh, ben, a century is when you bicycle 100 miles in one day. I'm sure you knew that. Oh, yeah. um, um, anyway, I remember thinking well, Jesse would be fantastic. This is an amazing thing that he did. And then I thought, but I kind of want to get out of the chess world. So, right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So Je- Jesse, you'll be in, you know, episode 50 or yeah, 70. D- or don't something. get too comfortable. Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to be asked sooner or later. Um, yeah, that's funny. Um, and Mike, by the way, I've been waiting for my call because, you know, some days I take my kids to the playground and Costco on, on the same day, you know, not, not just like separate trips. So like it's, it's an, crazy travel odyssey we have going on here in new jersey well ben if you have a video of you popping a wheelie in the shopping cart then we can start talking about the extremeness of it (laughs) okay uh sounds good and and do you have anything you want to tease coming up for the podcast mike i mean obviously listeners and and again uh i wouldn't just say this because you're here i listen to the podcast even though uh, travel is pretty you know my wife and i'll probably do like a 10-year anniversary trip and like you know, when our kids are a little bit older, you know, finances permitting, we can do we can do some trips. But as our old friend Mike Legrand was saying, um, your your travel odysseys become less extreme, if at all, once you have kids. But I still really enjoy it. Um, it it's a, it's a good way to uh, to you know uh, vicariously live through people doing fun things. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm inspired when I watch. Uh, somebody's YouTube video of him hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I probably won't ever hike the Appalachian Trail, but it's still like really pleasant just to watch him do it and listen to it. So I hope my podcast inspires people to travel. But even if you just, you know, like hearing about somebody or some other people that are doing these adventures that, you know, deep down you might not do as as long as you don't, you know, sink into a fit of depression as a result. Um, I hope it's still pleasant for them. Um, as As far as People coming up actually just did Mike Legrand in my podcast that dropped today. Um, the reason Mike made it on is because he let his friends decide where he would go for six months. So episode eight of Extreme Travel Odysseys, you can hear all about where his friends chose for him to go. And it was actually kind of a random drawing that that chose his location. But uh, some people I've got in the works. I've got a guy who sailed around the world for three years. Um, I've got um, a guy I'm trying to get. He did a documentary about uh, riding a Segway across the United States at 10 miles an hour, right when Segways came out. So I'm trying to book him. Um, I've got another guy who created my favorite travel documentary of all time. It's called 180 Degrees South. And he's a surfer 
and mountain climber. And what he did was he convinced Yvonne Schwinard and Doug Tompkins, the founders of North Face and Patagonia, to go with him to South America and have them climb like one last mountain together. Um, this is when, when Doug Tompkins was still alive and he films it all. So um, uh, I really am excited about booking him. He's already said yes, but he can't do it for a few more weeks. So I've got some people doing some interesting different adventures. Um, uh, oh, and I've got one guy from Charlotte who hiked to the top of all 50 high points of all 50 states, not finishing until I think he was in his 50s or 60s. Um, and I've always thought that personal achievement is attainable by many people. I'll be honest with you, I will probably never get to the top of Everest. But over the course of a lifetime, I could see myself going after this goal of getting to the top, you know, the highest 50 points in all 50 states. So, um, so yeah, there's just a little bit of everything coming up on the podcast. Excellent. So, uh, so you're enjoying yourself so far as a pod, as a podcast host? Yeah, I think it's inspiring me more to travel. And the, the, um, the actual episodes are flowing quite well. I was running out exact questions to ask. But I felt like I was constraining myself a little bit too much. So yeah, it's better not to, in in my opinion. Right. I've got, uh, I would say, heavy notes. Um, and then one piece of feedback I've been getting from some friends that have been listening is that I'm not talking about myself as much as they would want me to. Uh, and I think that might be just because of my journalism nature. I'm not used to saying I or talking about my own experiences. I'm used to just, you know, putting a microphone below Levon Aronian's face and asking him why he played a certain move. Um, so I'm trying to interject a little bit more of myself to make it more of a conversation, kind of like what you've done with your podcast. So I've got some definite ways I want to improve. Yeah, that was the very feedback I gave you. But of course, as I also told you, I was uh, basically floored by your ability to not say um and ah and stammer through every interview like I've been known to. So, uh, you, you know, you, you're only going to get better. Thanks. I think I've, the um or ah count is at least in the double digits so far on this one. I, maybe it's easier for me to be the, the interviewer than the interviewee. Yeah, that could be. Um, yeah. <laughs> See, there's one right now. Uh, and another. But anyway, um, I think we've got everything covered, Mike. I, I actually, I, I mentioned to my Patreon supporters, you taught me a lot about chess teaching as a business, um, especially when I was getting back into it a couple years ago, because of, you know, I already mentioned that you were a really good teacher. But you also, um, you teaching is one thing, but then building a business is another. But we've covered that topic some, and we got to leave something for a future Mike Klein interview. So I think we'll we'll leave that one alone and uh, just just go straight to telling people um, how they can reach you. Although I think those of those who know you already know. Yeah, I mean, if you want to buy one million Chess Kid memberships, um, Mike at ChessKid dot com <laughs> would be a fantastic way to reach me. Um, you can also just go to ExtremeTravelOdysseys.com to listen to all the episodes. I would love a review on iTunes. I know you'd love that too, Ben, for your podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, I would love uh, any support about the podcast. And, and thanks for continuing to read the Chess.com news articles. You know, you can find me on the homepage of Chess.com pretty much uh, any week. I'll have something new posted there. So uh, we'll also save the stories about acquiring Absinthe and Prague then. We'll oh, yeah, to- yeah. I meant to tease that. But yeah, God, we, we, we haven't told all our... Uh, I mean, they're not rated R, our stories, uh, really, I would say. But um, but yeah, we had some misadventures in our travels, often involving alcohol. <laughs> Although we didn't cut off our ears, at least. But There's, there's that. <laughs> all right. Um, okay, so I think that's it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, listeners, even if, you know... 
this is kind of silly, but of course you should leave a review and you should subscribe even if even if you don't listen, even if it doesn't pique your interest. You got to support independent content. If you enjoy Mike's chess content, hook a brother up, subscribe to his podcast. Um, but even better yet, check it out because I do think you'll enjoy it. And uh, Mike, it's been a long time coming, but uh, thanks, thanks for coming on Perpetual Chess. This was so much fun. Keep up the good work on your podcast and I'll keep riding your coattails. All right. Sounds good, Mike. Special shout out to Geert Vanderveld for supplying the Perpetual Chess intro music. I also want to thank everyone who supports the podcast. That includes people who tell their friends about the show, people who write a positive review on their podcast platform like Apple Podcasts, but most of all to those who've donated to support the show. I spend a lot of time doing it, probably about five hours a week, and even though I love the work, it can be hard to find the time. So I want to give special thanks to my Patreon and PayPal partners. And this list is getting a little bit long, but that is a great thing. That's what keeps the show going. So special thanks to Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Andre Krizdois, Alex Pejas, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, International Master Elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, I hope I said that right, Harish, James Banastia, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Jernigan, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, Katerina Nemkova, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passi, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Nathan Webster, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, Tatya Babrahamian, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Chachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrancul, Zhao Cheng, and Jivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I'll catch you all next week. Podcast Network.